This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Pentagon is rolling out new software that underpins the future of security clearance investigations and personnel vetting. The National Background Investigation Services, or NBIS, is expected to fully replace a suite of legacy systems by next year. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Executive Program Manager for NBIS at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, Jeff Smith. Imbus is really not one system. It's really a system, a transformational IT system that's going to be developed or is being developed on a unified platform to really just ultimately allow us to sunset seven different disparate systems across the personnel vetting mission. So when you think about that, those seven uh, disparate systems, you're talking about uh, obviously the original background investigation system, often referred to now as a legacy IT system. Uh, also sunsetting uh, are supporting supporting the missions, uh, obviously background investigations, but from adjudication, our DISC system that currently is the legacy system providing adjudication and subject management capabilities, uh, and then growing this new construct uh, that's roughly, let's call it about four years in execution, originally named continuous evaluation, but now continuous vetting. And so these are the three major mission streams, and those are supported by three major IT programs, all legacy in nature. So you have the legacy background investigation system, you have DIS, the adjudications module, and then you have Mirador, which provides our current CE or CECV capability set for the whole of government. Uh, additionally, there are other ancillary systems. Uh, many people will recognize the sunsetting of JPASS. This system was uh, was inherited by DCSA as the organization was forming. Uh, we had to make some crucial decisions uh, due to security risks to sunset that system. Uh, so that is a system that has been sunsetted uh, already back in April of 21. That functionality was uh, born or, or captured and produced inside of DIS, and then ultimately DIS will be transitioned into Inbus. And there are some other cats and dog uh, systems that go along with that. But think about seven disparate systems, a whole of government approach, and really supporting three major mission streams, as well as the vision to support our industry partners, roughly somewhere over 13,000 industry partners and our federal population. So when you're talking about case initiation capabilities that are kind of rolling out here, um, can you kind of describe what, what those are? Is this kind of the transition from uh, EQIP to EAP for applicants, or is this also the back end for agencies who are managing these cases? Can you kind of describe a little bit more about what that pillar looks like in INBIS? So I refer to it as case initiation. Uh, we often refer to it as well as uh, the ability to initiate, review, and authorize an applicant. And today, uh, to your point, uh, applicants who uh, apply for a job for a clearance inside the government, use EQIP. It goes through that legacy process. For those uh, who have had a clearance in the past, uh, they were using EQIP, and it used to be paper, and it's evolved over time. And uh, and Embus has now brought to bear a more robust uh, functionality to do a very similar function. And uh, what we've invested in here is called EAP. And EAP is a representation of the various standard forms, the SF-86, the 85, and the 85P. So these cover uh, basically uh, the population for U.S. government in some form or fashion for applying uh, and or for periodic reinvestigations. Uh, organizations are starting to use EAP now as well once they're onboarded and enrolled. 
The beauty about eApp is it's a much more uh, robust, uh, intuitive uh, front end. It has logic built in it uh, for error checking and correction. The ability to hopefully, not hopefully, we know it's doing it now, but it was predicated on investment in logic to help reduce the back and forth that we used to see in the prior years. So if a, an applicant makes a mistake or fails to give all the information over the re required time period, such as where they've lived or their relatives or other pertinent information, in the past, you would have this back and forth going on with this manual kind of construct. And it has gotten better uh, over the years. PIPs, uh, Equip, they've all kind of gotten better. Uh, but the main difference here is the logic that's built in to not allow the applicant to proceed until they reach that point of maturity in their application. So it removes a lot of the errors up front, therefore reducing any turnaround time or the back and forth ultimately speeding along the applicant's um, clearance request and or uh, the periodic reinvestigation uh, for future deferment into continuous vetting. Got it. No, it's, I mean, that's a great point because so many of these reforms are kind of targeted at just smoothing out the experience and making it faster in terms of bringing folks on board into the the national security into the and into the government. I, I'm wondering just uh, quickly on the e app. Last I saw, that was in a pilot phase. Is is that still the case? Is it available to folks today, or where is that at? No, it, it's well beyond the piloting phase. We I would say piloting began roughly prior to Christmas uh, at the end of last year. We have been up and running, and it is the cornerstone uh, to allowing us to onboard. When you hear me talk about onboarding into Pillar 1 or the front door of Inbus, that had to be a, a very mature, fleshed out capability. So it's, it originally started roughly about January with the build out and the release of the SF-86 and us beginning to onboard partners so that uh, they would go through a process to identify their hierarchies, their organizational hierarchies and build them into Inbus. And then uh, sort of as a gets training, uh, training is implied as it goes through. Every agency has to learn new ways of business inside of Inbus. Uh, they were exposed to EAP. And then we, we kind of use the idea of a graduating event. After a period of time of onboarding, an agency would go through the process of graduating by actually submitting live cases. And so today, as I mentioned, 64 agencies, actually maybe 65, uh, have now onboarded and are, are using EAP to submit cases. I think this morning's numbers are roughly about 3,300 cases that have been submitted through EAP uh, since roughly since about January. And the, the number reflects, again, the onboarding of a parent organization. And the, the challenge for the enterprise is not only onboarding the parent, but all the sub elements of an organization. So uh, this is our long ball game here is not only get the initial parent in and using the front door, but for that parent to turn around and train and scale the agency, the rest of their sub elements in order to get full enterprise recognition. But bottom line, 3,300 cases being submitted through the front door. That's some uh, number of SF-86s, 85s, and 85Ts. And again, it's, it's up and running, and scaling is only going to – we're going to see a major trend in acceleration of the numbers. And what's very important there is with that pillar open, 
basically, you reduce the burden on EQIP. So every case that's submitted through the front door of Embus is one less case that will be submitted in EQIP. So it, by natural process of growth and maturity, the reliance on those legacy systems starts to ultimately go the other way, go down and to a point where we get enough maturity where we can start to look at opportunities to sunset those systems. That was Jeff Smith, Executive Program Manager for NBIS at the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. 
Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly, you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done, no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. 
And we left the meeting and we were walking back to the office and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now. Now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.